1: Live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Your traders on the desk are Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, and Guy Dami. Tonight on Fast, you will hear from Steve Eisman of Big Short Fame. He'll tell us where he is spotting the next big market opportunity. Plus, an earnings alert on United Airlines. That's not getting a lift after reporting results. We'll break down the headlines. And speaking of earnings, the options market is betting big on a big move. From Netflix, when we'll reports report tomorrow, we will break down the action. But we begin with the race to new records. Stocks breaking out as bank earnings season gets underway. J.P. Morgan gaining 3% on strong results. And the company says the consumer is holding strong. Meantime, Bank of America reports tomorrow. But one of its biggest shareholders is getting even more bullish. Berkshire seeking permission from the Fed to boost its stake in the bank beyond the 10% threshold. So did Jamie and Warren. Just give the okay to ride this rally to new record highs. Why not?
2: I mean, those are the two. I mean, if if those two say it's okay, who am I to argue with those two guys, right? (laughs) Back to you. Back to you, Mel. I think, look, the JP Morgan quarter was fine, and we'll talk about banks. But just to put it in perspective, you know, tangible book and JP Morgan $60, stocks $120. Even I, in my lame mind, can do that math and tell you book tangible, you know, to tangible book, it's two times tangible book right now. That is a pretty big uh, premium in this environment, I think. In terms of Mr. Buffett, he's actually sitting on a record amount of cash as well. Maybe that's why he wants it in more of these banks, but the one indicator that he's looked at his entire career, the Wilshire 5000 over GDP in the United States, I mean, that is flashing as red as it maybe has ever flashed. So listen, I've been skeptical, I've been wrong. And the VIX below
3: 14 to me is madness. But with that said, you know, the market seems to be full speed ahead. And that's a fix that's down 40 percent in eight sessions. So it tells you what investors it's been a roller coaster ride. And I think the sentiment still is this 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 tug of war. Uh, Look, back to what J.P. Morgan, Jamie Dimon, what banks could be telling us. The biggest money center bank told you that the consumer is not only healthy, that they see wages and they see spending. Um, Their balance sheet's never been better. Uh, Their 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 bar was so high going into this number and they beat it. Um, That's what makes this very impressive. How it trades from here, it's hard to know Guys talking about where the valuation is. Um, I don't think it's expensive at all, especially if it is best in class. Um, but I think, you know, it, it's been easy to push back on banks and say they're not all trading like this. Um, but you know, when I look at JP Morgan on a one, or one year basis or a two year basis has outperformed the S&P. Um, you know, that, that tells you that banks that are run well, uh, that are efficient in capital. And even when fees are in their face and there's compression in a lot of different banking areas, efficiencies and cost savings and giving capital
4: back to investors is something yeah, that works. T- That's a pretty narrow argument, because you're just talking about J.P. Morgan. If you look at the investment banks, they're down Goldman and Morgan 25 percent from their 2018. But they're not money center banks. hold on a second. They're trying to be more like them, okay? And then when you think about the regional banks, they're down 13, 14 percent from their 2018 highs, stuck in a range, in a downtrend. So I'm just saying, like, I don't disagree with you about J.P. Morgan. You guys have heard me say it quite frequently, and, and, uh, you know, like... Buy J.P. Morgan. Have a ball. You know, it just made a new all-time high. Yeah, I, 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 I have. It's, no, and I, it's, it's a, a that's good time. time. I'm but, feeling but pretty lot, good about it. But most of the other banks in the <laughs> U.S. don't act particularly well, and they don't share the same characteristics that you just said that J.P. Morgan does relative to the S&P 500.
3: So right? there's a bad sign in your Well, I'm of, just saying it's not it, You know what I mean? But, so it, but, but, okay, so let me counter to that, yeah. because I, I don't think Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs are playing in anywhere the same pool. It's not even about better or worse. I think they're different businesses. But when I look at Bank of America and I look at Citibank, I think we can start to have a similar conversation. Mm -hmm. And, yes, I don't think those banks have kept pace with J.P. Morgan. But those would be the diversified uh, both exposure to the U.S. economy, the global economy, banking, consumer loans, mortgages. I I like them both as well.
5: I mean, I agree. J.P. Morgan, there was a lot to like. Uh, The net interest margin did come in a little bit, as you would expect, during pressure on rates that we saw. Uh, Loans a little better spread. Uh, The thing to me that really stood out um, here and in Citibank was how strong credit cards were right? That business was up huge for both of them. And so that tells you the consumer is really spending. Whether or not, you know, you always talk about their balance sheet not being in as good shape. It's been the worst for we've seen in a decade. They're still out there spending. They're still out there feeling comfortable. So that's interesting to me. That hopefully reads well for uh, retail. We won't see that for a little while. But so J.P. Morgan, even Jamie Dimon, who, as you know, Almost I just love. first named
3: him. Yeah, Almost, I uh,
5: did. Yeah, you, know. you know, yeah, I could do you that. And you're allowed. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't need to answer. So <laughs> the, he talked about uh, return on tangible common equity, 18 percent, which is a really, really excellent number. But he also said, look, this is peak. These are these are peak numbers. We're not going to see forever something like, you know, the that environment that's perfect. Um, paraphrasing. But so there's a lot to like. But I think there's a little bit of caution in there as well, and on the flip side, I actually thought Goldman Sachs wasn't that bad. It wasn't that bad that it would opened down a few dollars. There's a lot lumpy in there, right? Marking down Uber, marking down some other private equity. Right. That to me is very lumpy. It doesn't. It, it it should be sort of ignored. I would ignore it on the upside if they had a big gain. So that's sort of getting kind of interesting, but so JP Morgan, Bank of America and Citi. I'm with Tim. I like Bank of America and Citi um, as well. Want to own them all? I don't know if uh, Warren Buffett will be able to buy more stock. This has been a long standing. 10% has been a threshold for right. a long, long time. But in
1: terms of these particular banks, the ones that have the broadest businesses that touch the consumer and, yep. and, the, and the globe, um, these businesses doing well in terms of Warren Buffett wanting to buy more of Bank of America, yes. regardless of whether or not right. he is, is allowed to. Can we extrapolate that this is good news for the markets? We're just sitting at, you know, 1% away from record highs.
5: I don't know. I don't know if him wanting to buy more Bank America says, I can't find value anywhere else. I don't know. I'm happy no as Bank of America's shareholder, <laughs> yeah. right? Well. Um,
3: I just, you know, I want to drop today's earnings. We've been waiting for earnings season. It's, a, it's yeah. nice to be able to talk about bottom-up stories, even if we're talking about top-down about the bottom-up. But, but you know, the, the trade deal on Friday is not something I'm doing cartwheels about. I don't think phase one is anything to get excited about. In fact, I don't really even understand phase one. I certainly don't think we want it. Um, but it's not about us and them. It's about where's the economy and, and is, it, is it all in right now? And, no, it's not all in. Uh, and, in fact, y- you could say that Jamie Dimon's assessment of the U.S. consumer is at peak labor. Um, and it's not that C- CFOs and CEOs are, are terribly confident with the economy right now. We know they are not. So um, I, I think for, for, for the stock market, I just want to be clear, um, being uh, cautious on the economy, being cautious on the trade deal does not mean that certain stocks can't continue to go higher. And that's what we do. Yeah, seen. but you
4: know, I, I just got to make this point. Guys, we were in mid-July, you know, Q2 earnings uh, or you know, Q2 earnings period, then go back to you know, late April, early May, that was Q1 earnings period. We had the same sort of vibe, you know, the markets were at highs. We were kind of, what are we gonna discount? Where are we gonna break out to new highs? That's how you started this conversation, Mel. And I'm just gonna tell you, it sets up almost identical to those prior two periods. We are now back for all intents and purposes at a new all-time high. We will be there within a couple of days. And then the question you have to ask yourself is what are we discounting, right? Expectations were very low into earnings. We know that. We've been talking about that for a couple of weeks. So let's say you come in above that you have these early beats stocks move and then as we make a new high then what because to your point tim i don't think anybody after we had the weekend to think about what this trade deal was it was a whole lot of nothing it's like nafta 2.0 it's like all the other stuff that we get promised oh, we is a huge advancement getting so, pulled up over brexit so, today is
3: also something that's a little weird i, I agree with you so, but I, so, I, I, so my, I my only
4: point is those last two times when we had this new high at the back end of earnings season, what did we get? We got seven percent drawdowns right afterwards, and they're usually corresponded with some disappointment about trade. And what's different this time is that we have a Fed—you know what I mean—that has been easing over the same time. Semiconductors period.
3: continue to make all-time highs. Semiconductors total are ten percent
4: total outlier. But isn't
3: that the ultimate sign of cyclicality and the ultimate sign of the global economy? Maybe. I don't know. We've been hearing that you can't get higher, but in fact, they, that, that's a great-looking chart right now. And I, you know, I'm not telling you I feel great about the world. I'm just right. telling you that some of these things in the face of what hasn't been good news go hard
2: real quick on the banks in terms of jp morgan two times normal volume today it traded it closed basically where the previous all-time high was which i think was march of 2018 or so so much like apple who by the way apple blew right through it i mean you have a potential for a bit of a double top here It, it would make sense if you're trading this on a day like today to take some profits but i would understand if you want to continue to ride this jpm train and by the way I think the restraining order is now... It's over? It's over, so you, you're good to go with <laughs> okay, J.D. Okay, fantastic. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Our next guest has three names that he says are going to drive us to new highs. Chris Verona of Strategus is over at the bottom. Chris, what are you looking at?
6: Hey, Melissa, well, let's start with the name of the day. That's obviously J.P. Morgan. I just want to put this in some context. Remember, back to the 2016 lows, J.P.M. was a $50 stock. It goes 50 to 120, and then it hits a wall in January of 2018 at about 120, and we get just two years of dead money. Now, where was the S&P two years ago? Roughly the same level, 2,900, 2,950. So let's zoom in here to these two years of indifference, and let's see if we can learn a little bit about where this one goes next. January of 18, 120. Another failure at 120. Another failure at 120. Four or five times along the way, we've been unable to overcome those prior highs. Why do I think this time is a little bit different? for one, the moving averages are now all upward sloping again, 50 back above the 200. And I think, importantly, the yield curve is steepening. It was flattening, this whole move, now steepening. So there's a change in character in this chart. When we look at this range, 120 to about 90, 30-point range. You get a breakout here above 120, you're talking about $150 stock. We think, ultimately, that's where this thing is going, one of our favorite big cap bank plays. Second name, in terms of a bellwether, deer, industrial, been at the center of the storm, this entire China trade, stuck here near 170. We've been here before. We failed in the past. What's a little bit different this time? The bears had every opportunity to finish this thing off four, five, six weeks ago, and they couldn't. They had it on the ropes, but they couldn't deliver the fatal punch. Boom, come right back at the highs, 170, this is about a 30-point range. You're looking at $200 and $205 stock if you can get a breakout here. We think you do. Again, 50 back above the 200. We held support, 200-day now upward sloping. So the technicals are improving, even though not much price progress was made here. And then lastly, so we have a bank, we have industrials, and we have some tech. This is Alphabet. I think this is another example, this is an $800 billion company, another example of a big mega-cap bellwether acting better than the consensus is giving it credit for. 20% drawdown in spring of 18, another 20% drawdown last year, and another 20% drawdown earlier this year. So we're looking at three bear markets in this chart over the last two years. I don't think we get a fourth. We have the technicals improving, 50 back above the 200. You held support the other day. 1240, 1250 is where we trade today. We're talking about a 300-point range from high to low. You get a breakout here, you're looking at a $1,500 stock. So between Alphabet, between J.P. Morgan, between Deere, these are bellwethers sending a very powerful message about this market that we think it's going up.
1: Come on over, Chris.
6: Bring them over.
1: We'll bring the chair in. Come on, Will.
2: Will does an amazing job. You know, by the way, Will is a Harvard grad, much I like yourself. That. I
1: know that. <laughs> yes. And he
2: went to the actual university <laughs> at the online academy.
1: <clears throat> I'm going to leave that where it is. Um, in terms of these three stocks, Chris, yeah. are these three stocks outliers compared to their peers, or are they representative of their sector? Well,
6: I, I think what's remarkable here is the market knows a lot more than I know or you know or you know. And I think when you look at some of these bellwethers over the last couple of weeks, Across all different sectors, right, industrials, Deer, J.P. Morgan, banks, even CD Group uh, acting better, Taiwan Semi uh, in the semi, Samsung, big global, blah, blah, blah. these things are breaking out of two-year ranges, right? So how many more of these do we need to see before directionally up has to become the base case? And I think that's the environment we're in here. And I love the fact that the IMF downgraded growth today. I, I love it. I think it's such a great contrarian signal that just as things look like they start to get better, the IMF wants to take the other side.
4: But Chris, couldn't you say for every deer there's a cat, for right. every that's, Google there's an Amazon, for every J.P. The Morgan there's the regionals. I mean, like, they kind of balance each other off in a lot of ways, and I don't really see picking out three. I, listen, they're all those are good-looking charts, yeah. okay? They, they are, and those companies, they, they probably have pretty, pretty decent fundamentals good valuation but I can find another one you know I'd say I'd argue to you then say that Amazon's almost more important than Google I would say that I, I just don't know you know I mean
6: you know I it's certainly a very good point but let's rewind the clock back 12 months ago right sitting here October of 2018 there was only one place in the world to make any money it was fake right it was the only game in town that worked today you have other parts of the world getting better Europe trades great even parts of EEM better industrials for the first time in two years show some signs of life i think what's notable about that sector if you look at it equally weighted it's already broken out right so the average industrial stock is actually trading better than the cat or the Boeing. so there's some signs under the surface that hey maybe directionally up which is the least populated call is the right one
1: implicit to all of these charts though chris is your broader call that the markets will in fact hit new record highs. And well beyond a percent higher, or
6: yeah, I, I think this is a directional move. You know, we have the combination of bear sentiment and good seasonals. That's a powerful or potent cocktail, I think, for this market to rally into the back half of the year here. Okay,
1: Chris, great to see you. Thank, Thank you. you, Chris Varone of Strategas.
6: John Deere,
2: I mean, this, it looks very much like Apple looked a couple weeks ago, the same way that J.P. Morgan looked. this the Deere 172 is the same level of trade. I think in January 2018. I mean, valuation, I don't know, 16 times in this environment. I think it's a little rich. They report on November 17th. We'll see. Again, if you're trading it, if you've enjoyed this run up, and it has been a decent run up, I think you take profits here in DE.
1: All right, coming up, United taking flight after reporting results and mm. break down what is fueling those gains. Plus, oh. Oh. you know him from the big short. Steve Eisman is back, and he's ready to give his next best idea. We're live from Times Square in New York City. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money Time for an Earnings with United Airlines and Interactive Brokers both just reported results. Eric Chemney standing by on Interactive. We begin with Phil LeBeau on United. Hey, Phil.
9: And, Melissa, one reason why the stock is moving higher is because this is a company that beat the street by 10 cents earning $4.07 a share. The consensus was for $3.97. Revenue coming in at $11.38 billion, just a shy of expectations. But when you go with the numbers within the numbers, generally speaking, this was an encouraging third quarter. Let's start first off with passenger per available seat mile. Passenger revenue per available seat mile up 1.7% in the mid-range of their guidance. Pre-tax margin better than expected at 12.1%. And yes, unit cost was slightly higher than the guidance Guidance of two percent, but keep in mind they had some issues in terms of pulling back flights to China and Hong Kong, which meant fewer seats going over to that part of the uh, part of the world. They have raised their full year guidance. It is now in the range of 11.25 to 12.25 a share. It was in the range of 10.50 to 12 dollars shares. Not only that, they are now saying that they are ahead of pace to exceed their expect to at least meet or exceed expectations for next year's full year earnings of between 11 and 13 dollars a share. Remember, tomorrow morning, live on Squawk Box, an exclusive interview with Oscar Munoz, CEO of United Airlines, we'll talk about the third quarter, more importantly, we'll talk about their outlook, not only in terms of demand on the leisure and the corporate side. What they're expecting with the 737 MAX. Remember, Melissa, it's been pulled off the schedule until early next year. But already we're starting to hear rumblings from people in the airline industry who are saying, really, do we really think that this plane will be back at the beginning of next year? Is it more likely it might get pushed further into the first quarter? We'll talk about that with Oscar Munoz.
1: Bill, is it safe to say that United's guidance is usually conservative?
9: Yes, Yeah, generally speaking, not wildly conservative, but relative to other airlines, they are considered to be one of the more conservative uh, companies when it comes to
1: guidance. Okay. Phil, thanks. Phil LeBeau in Chicago for us, which makes this raise guidance.
3: Even better looking. I think that raise is pretty, pretty decent. I mean, they they raised the bottom end of the range by over, of just about ten percent. Um, they've they've given you a sense that where their business is. They've given you a little bit more visibility into twenty twenty, which is excellent. Um, and it, and it shows that they can be more efficient with with you know, their their core business, which is what people are always worried about with airlines. It's it's how costs and how capacity tend to spiral out of control. It's why they trade at multiples that really belie the profitability of these companies over the last four or five years. So I like airlines. They are very cyclical as well. Um, they're near kind of the middle to the bottom part of their ranges. I think you own them here.
5: Agree. I like airlines. Uh, you know, Delta reported the other day it wasn't great. I thought it was sort of overdone. It wasn't terrible. Um, it'll be interesting to see what they have to say about the 737 MAX. That's sort of a mixed bag of when it comes back because for some who don't have big exposure, they've been able to pick up... Right. Extra revenue. But it's been expensive for Delta. That's expensive revenue. Right. Um, you know, you costs, time, Right. And all so that. that so it's a little bit of a double edged sword. I don't know how that's going to shake out ultimately. But I mean, I agree with you, the multiples are cheap as airline multiples should be, given how cyclical the business is. But. Um, I like them here. Still long.
1: You, know, you take a look at United and you think they've been doing okay without the 737 MAX. It's funny because I'm looking and over. You put I'm that so, back in and that's more capacity. I'm cheating right.
2: over Dan's shoulder here. He's got a great a chart Sudoku. up. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <Just kidding>. <laughs> <laughs> that's very really, really funny.
2: Dan knows a lot. But it has been in this uptrend for quite some time now. And actually, that guidance raise probably makes United cheaper than Delta at these levels. So against what is a pretty well-defined stop at this point, I think UAL is actually pretty interesting here.
1: All right, let's move on to Interactive Brokers. That stock in the red off its lows of the after-hour session, though. Eric Chamey
10: is back at headquarters with the latest. Eric. That's right, Melissa. So the stock was down about 3% right away, and it's now come back to flat. But look, the real story is that Interactive Brokers down about 10%. Since announcing that it would eliminate fees on September 26th, the company on the conference call a few minutes ago saying, look, we're trying to create the best trading platform for customers. For a lot of customers, the word best means zero commissions. But they're going to make money off of this because if you have a zero commission account, you're going to get your order routed to a liquidity provider. Those liquidity providers, they will pay interactive brokers. So that's how the company is going to make up that money. So the quarter that we just got, remember, that quarter ended September 30th. This was announced September 26th. It's almost like it doesn't matter because the stock was year-to-date flat. It's basically flat now. What's going to happen now starting this quarter when these changes take effect? You can compare to their competitors. Schwab's up 12% since its announced fee cuts. TD's up 7%. E-Trade's up 7%. Interactive Brokers has been down, so they're lagging right now based on that. So the story isn't so much what they said in the third quarter, but what they're going to be doing here in the fourth quarter. Melissa, back to you.
1: All right, Eric, thank you, Eric Chemi. Um And it can be argued that some of these other businesses that have actually gone up after announcing zero fees or cut fees is because they have other businesses... They're not as dependent on trading revenues.
2: Schwab is one of those. Mm-hmm. That, you know, it's interesting. Schwab probably wins to this because they can cut it to zero, let their competitors right. fall by the wayside, and then do what they want. So I understand what Eric is saying here in terms of the liquidity providers, these dark, all that stuff, except that that's going to go away over time as well. These businesses continue to get marginalized and constrained. So at 20 times forward earnings, which is where Interactive Brokers is right now, In my opinion, in this environment, even though the stock has been cut in half over the last couple of years, it's still too expensive.
4: Yeah, I would just say like an Ameritrade, you know, this thing has gotten nailed. I think hit the hardest of all these. And, you know, to me, I think this stock, you know, estimates are coming down for next year and they probably have gotten kind of cheap. And uh, I look at this and I say to myself, you're probably going to see some consolidation in the next year. And you want to buy the ones that are going to be consolidated. And I suspect that Ameritrade is going to be one of them. Well, I mean,
3: if you don't like banks, I don't think you can like these guys. And and if you think about the places where their business might be growing, they have a lot of loan exposure. They have a lot of consumer credit exposure to the extent that they've reached out into that world. I'm kind of neutral here. I mean, I I don't think um, I I think these guys have a better handle on their business than we do, frankly, which means that they are into areas where they have uh, very sticky asset pools. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's really what it counts. It's about their balance sheet. Um, But I do think if you look at the core bread and butter business, it is kind of, as we said, going the way of the dodo bird. And I, I don't think you need to chase them here.
7: Right.
1: All right. We've got much more ahead on Fast Money. Here is what's coming up next.
7: The next Big Short. Steve Eisman of Big Short Fame is here.
2: He'll tell us where he's spotting the next major market move. And later it's tailbreak time. Insiders getting the go-ahead to start selling two recent IPOs. We have the lockup lowdown when Fast Money returns.
1: Welcome back to Fast Money. You may know our next guest from The Big Short. He was one of the investors who shorted the housing bubble before it crashed more than 10 years ago. He is now eyeing a few names that he is shorting this time around. Let's bring in Steve Eisman of Newburger Berman. Steve, welcome back to Fast Money. Great to have you with us.
6: Thank you. Good to be um, back.
1: Obviously, for The Big Short, that was sort of a, a macro call. Are there macro shorts in this market? Or are there big bubbles? or are there inefficiencies that you see?
0: I don't see a systemic uh-huh. problem. You know, The banking system is in... The best shape of the thirty years i 've been analyzing banks, you know is there going to be a recession next year or the year after i don 't know I mean I think we are we are in a global industrial recession as we speak um, that 's not the same thing as a recession because industrial companies are about ten to fifteen percent of the economy but I, I think when the industrial companies report it 'll be pretty universally weak,
1: mm-hmm.
0: almost without exception
1: a, a lot of people have made a lot about how rates have been close to zero or below zero for a very long time. Are there any sorts of bubbles that have formed around that dynamic or no?
0: I mean, are there po- pockets of bubbles? I mean, QE to me is what I like to call monetary policy for rich people, meaning it raises asset prices It has zero impact on the economy. It actually has some, ne- some very negative aspects to it. In other words, if you're a saver, it's not helping you, it's hurting you. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't find QE is helpful to the actual economy, it just causes asset prices to go up. Now, is that a bubble? I mean, the market's not that expensive, so it's not that ish, but it definitely has caused asset prices to go up.
1: Okay, um, let's talk about some of your individual ideas. Uh, I think that all the times that I've spoken to you over the past couple of years, you've been short Deutsche Bank. Are you still short Deutsche Bank?
0: Still short Deutsche Bank. Okay. Three years, I'm, three years in running.
1: Yeah. What will cause you to take off that short? Because it has already hit record low after record low after record low.
0: The problem Deutsche Bank now suffers from is they're trying, trying to shrink themselves to profitability. And one thing we have learned time and time and time again post-crisis is that's impossible. And so they're going to shrink, and they're going to they're become less profitable. And I think the stock goes even lower, and then we'll see.
1: Does it go under? I mean, this. I mean, this is all this is happening a as before.
0: banks go out of business for funding issues. Uh huh. There's no funding issues at this time of Deutsche Bank. This is purely a profitability problem.
1: And is this an idiosyncratic short, or do you also see opportunities to short other, or have you been short other German banks? Like, I mean, Commerzbank. Not other German it, banks,
0: obviously. other European banks. The problem. Pro- uh-huh. I mean, when you take a step back and say, like, can we boil it down to a paragraph or a sentence? Like, what does a bank do for a living? What a bank does for a living is it sells you access to its balance sheet for a price. And so if you want to calculate what's the absolute return of a bank, it's return on assets, the whole balance sheet. Then you just multiply that by the leverage, and you get the ROE. So ROE times L equals ROE. Simple formula. The problem with European banks is that they have sold access to their balance sheets too cheaply for decades. And the ROE has even gone down post-crisis and the leverage has come down for regulatory reasons, and that's the problem with European. Deutsche Bank is just really the extreme example of what, what plagues most European banks all over the continent.
5: So what, with the ECB trying to reflate there, do you think that... Oh, that's hopeless. It's hopeless. Uh, hopeless.
0: <laughs> uh, QE in Europe, in put it this way, zero rates or negative rates, what does that mean? I, I think it means it's, it's created global overcapacity. Because every stock buyback has been done, every deal has been funded, every P.E. has been funded, every venture capital has been funded, every startup has been funded. And so what you have is global overcapacity and deflation. So why would anybody think that doing more of the same thing would cause inflation is utterly beyond me? I think what the ECB is doing is a perfect example of trying to do the same thing over and over again ex- and
3: expecting a different outcome. That's the best definition of insanity. But that, that sounds s- systemically horrendous, um, ultimately. It and I, and the assumption horrendous. is that the central <laughs> banks can continue to print money, and therefore it doesn't really matter. Is that, is that really because, again, that's the funding argument? Because we, ha- we talk about $17 trillion in negative-yielding assets all the time. Right, but, that but, sounds but like they, but a bubble. But
0: they can keep funding because, I mean, take a look at Japan. Japan's debt to g- government debt to GDP is 240%. We're at, I forget where we are now, 125, something like that. So we got two times more to go. And, and whose rates are lower? So, I mean, I, I don't understand why, completely why Japan's rates are lower than ours. I just only know that they are, and they have a lot more debt to GDP than we do. So, you know, what causes interest rates to go up in a world of QE is above my pay grade at this point.
4: Steve, what do, you, what do you make of, we were just talking about, um, you know, zero interest rates, QE. It's obviously great for people who own risk assets. So if you think about what's different this time to, let's say, 20 years ago, as far as technology um, valuations are concerned, is that we just saw, you know, some companies come to public markets, and really they were able to be funded by this zero interest rate environment. And I'm thinking of Uber that had an $80 billion valuation. Now it's now about it 50. Okay, and then we had WeWork, you know, that was originally at 47. Bonds at 10%. It might go to Maybe zero, 15. It might maybe go to maybe. zero. Yeah. So, my question is, is all these companies were funded by this environment? They're disintermediating massive companies that are public, that are profitable, all that sort of stuff. Is that a bubble? Are we about to see the reckoning of that on the backside? Because oh, we're seeing It's possible that started. bubble
0: has broken to some degree in that every single IPO, and I'm not picking on anybody. Right. You know, Smile Direct, for example, which is, I think it went public at 23. Where did it close today? 10, 11. Um, So I think the public's public's appetite to take private equity out or venture capital out for companies, no matter how good their ultimate business models may be, but that don't make money, I think is, at least for the moment, is done. Now, what's that going to mean for for, um, Silicon Valley? Maybe it'll mean, God forbid, the companies will have to learn how to make money.
1: Um, Some of your other shorts that you've spoken publicly about, Steve, Zillow. Yes. And Tesla. Yes. What is the short? I'm
0: still short both of them.
1: You're still short both of them. Yes. What is the short that you are the most excited about?
0: I'd say those would be two of them.
1: Zillow and Tesla. I think
0: Zillow has created for itself perhaps the most dangerous business model that I've seen in a very, very, very long time. Because you know,
1: they started house flipping Because they're themselves. flipping houses. Yeah.
0: And you know, the, the CEO, I think his last name is Barton, is without question a great internet investor. But I think the, the example of Zillow is a case of genius is not always transferable. So, you know, for example, you know, some people might think I'm a very good investor, but my wife doesn't think I'm too bright when I come home. <laughs> and, um, or you could be a great physicist, but you can't ride a bike. So you could be a great internet platform creator, and I grant you, Barton is. But the business of buying homes, flipping them, requires making a good investment decision at a very, very low margin business. And it actually requires managing thousands upon thousands of human beings. Because the internet is not going to paint the house for you. A person has to do that. The Internet's not going to pull the carpet out of the house. A person has to do that. And this is a business. The problem with the business is that Internet platform companies love to talk about the TAM. They, right. they wax poetic about the TAM. Total and, addressable market. and The total addressable market. And when they announced this, the CEO went on about the TAM for 10 minutes. I mean, it's like poetry. And the problem is there isn't one TAM for residential real estate. There are thousands of local TAMs and they're all different and the ability to make mistakes in every single one is very, very high. This is not a business you want to roll out quickly because it's so local. You want to learn from your mistakes and this company is doing this so aggressively that it's bound to make a lot of mistakes.
1: Are either of these shorts, Tesla or Zillow, are these shorts that you go that you basically the bet is that they go out of business in some way? They go bankrupt? Well, that's, they go, that's not my no.
0: bet. Okay. I'm not making that bet. I'm not making the bet that Tesla's gonna go out of business. I'll make me the bet. I mean it's rare to make especially in a world of zero rates where everybody gets funded right. to make a bet that somebody's gonna go out of business. I mean the problem is also when the stock gets to two, chances are it goes to six
3: before it goes to zero. Uh-huh. Do you think there's misrepresentation in either of these stories? In other words, the public is not getting a transparent or an accurate read in the in the true well, I think, you know,
0: with respect to Tesla, he likes to pull a shtick every quarter, because there are four things that matter with Tesla. There's the deliveries, there's the margins, there's that income, and there's cash flow. And for at least for the last two quarters, what he likes to do is tweet that they're doing very, very well on de- the deliveries, and uh-huh. the stock tends to go up. And then at least the li- last quarter, the other three variables are terrible, and the stock comes down. So... I don't know why that's allowed, right? but he's played this game again where he's tweeting how great the deliveries are. We'll see how the rest of the earnings are when he reports. Sure.
1: Um, everybody asks you about what you're short because of big short fame, all that stuff. Right. Um, what's your favorite long?
0: My favorite long is a company called Motorola Solutions, which okay. it's a little obscure, um, but it's not a small cap stock. It makes emergency communication equipment right. for police, firemen, et cetera. You know, what I really like about it is it's very good management. They're well incentivized. It's an oligopoly, slightly regulated. Business has gotten better over the last couple of years. I don't have to worry about China. I don't have to worry that much about a recession. It's kind of, it's, it's about as idiosyncratic along as you could imagine.
1: Steve, great to see you. Thanks for coming by. Thank you. Steve Eisman, Newberger Berman.
2: Or it could be like me and just have no discernible skills whatsoever. I mean, <laughs> okay. home, here, doesn't matter. I mean, at least you has got You're never a genius anywhere. Somewhere. <laughs> the Deutsche Bank is fascinating. We've been talking about it for a while. I mean, Steve, It's when I hear Steve talk, he's shorted it because it's just a bad bank. And that's good enough reason. My concern would be it's not only just a bad bank. You know, there's a there's a derivatives book there, which could potentially be... I hate using the word catastrophic, but there could be some systemic risk a long way. We're going to find out. But I'm with them 100% on Deutsche Bank. Even at current levels, it's still way too expensive.
1: All right. Coming up, United Health surging today. We'll get the trader's take on the big move. Fast Money's back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a news alert on the opioid litigation. Let's get to Meg Terrell at headquarters with the details. Meg
11: hey, Well, the three major drug distributors named in thousands of lawsuits alleging they contributed to the nation's opioid crisis are close to a potential settlement for $18 billion. Now, that's according to reporting from The Wall Street Journal tonight, citing people familiar with the discussions. Now, this comes just days before the first federal trial over the opioid crisis is set to begin Monday in Cleveland, where those companies, along with pharmacies like CVS, Walgreens and Walmart, are named. Four drug makers have reached settlements with just the two counties involved in that trial, while Teva remains the sole drug. Drug maker there now. This settlement, though, if it's reached, would address the lawsuits more broadly, according to the journal. And the 18 billion dollars would be paid over 18 years. The paper also reports Johnson and Johnson is involved in the discussions to contribute additional money. Now, shares of the drug distributor's Cardinal Health, McKesson, and Merisource, Bergen they are up quite a bit in the after-hours. Probably as the settlement split among the three and paid over 18 years may be less than what some on Wall Street had feared. Morgan Stanley in August estimated base-case liability for Cardinal at 8.2 billion dollars. McKesson at $10.9 billion and Amerisource Bergen at $6.9 billion. Amerisource Bergen declined to comment tonight, while McKesson and Cardinal Health didn't immediately respond. J&J just told us, as its CFO did this morning on Squawk, that it's, quote, open to viable options to resolve these cases, including through settlement. Mel, back over to you.
1: All right, Meg, thank you. Meg Terrell. Um, it would be paltry if the three uh, drug distributors and J&J split it over 18 years Right, eighteen bill uh, eighteen the, was billion Andrei dollars. in the, in those three. Meg said that they okay. might kick in money. Oh, okay. Yes. okay. So and then you spread that over eighteen, 18 years, years, right? And it's almost nothing.
5: Wow. Well, that's I guess why they're up so big in the after hours. I'm right. surprised. I would have thought that this has been not priced in this, but the idea that there would be some sort of global settlement been happening but that's interesting
3: yeah I think this is I mean this is an extraordinary uh, result if it's the final result um, I think again you have federal dynamics up up ahead I, I you know I think there will be more people coming forward I think this is still an overhang but in the short run I you know I like J&J yesterday I like it more today And Tim was right about J&J but uh, you know McKesson at ni- less than nine times forward earnings
2: they report on the 30th if this news if this is sort of the last bit of news we're gonna hear until then You have to ask the question, do you want to be the shortest name into earnings? My answer would be no. So I do think there's further room to the upside, and specifically MCK and Cardinal Health as well.
1: All right, let's stick with health care. Check out shares of Health topping the tape today after crushing the streets' earnings and revenue expectations before the bell while raising full-year guidance. Strong earnings report might be just one of two potential major catalysts for the stock, the next being Democratic presidential primary debate. That is tonight. And healthcare, namely Medicare for all, is likely to take center stage. So what do we make of today's move, and what should investors expect from tonight's debate? And I think the real question is here you have an example of the fundamentals for this company look great and yet there are these political headwinds and so which which do you say will reign supreme when it comes to the price action
2: you would stock? hope it's fundamentals because the political stuff hope. is just rhetoric and you gonna maybe here tonight maybe you won't maybe there'll just be a a war on capitalism tonight who knows but to answer your original question i mean it's justified and we've talked about united health for a while i'm surprised it's taken this long quite frankly, in terms of getting to these levels. And I still think there's room on the upside. But at its trough, at 13 times forward earnings at a company that historically trades close to 18... It's just too cheap, and I think this earnings results tells you exactly what you need to know.
4: Well, it's interesting, you know, when you talk about the run this stock has had from the November two thousand and sixteen election to its highs last year, the stock nearly doubled, and 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 that was on a lot of politics, right? A lot of um, regulatory and issues being taken away, and so when you think about the downtrend the stock has been in over the last year or so maybe it makes sense tonight. I think you'll see a lot of these candidates on a very crowded stage move more towards the center rather than further to the left, which is that Medicare for all. And these stocks should kind of get a bit of a lift on that, I think, over time, unless Warren and Sanders make it very clear that they become the front runners, then these stocks have some issues. But the stock... Sorry, Karen. Uh,
5: Well, no, I've longed some Anthem. Mm -hmm. I had sold some before. I I mean, I'd sort of be... This was really good news today. If yeah. their medical loss ratio uh, is anything similar to the kind of progress that United Health has, that's great. Uh, it's cheap on fundamentals. It's cheap to itself. I think it's also priced in a lot of the Warren Sanders rise. If they end up being very strong tonight and the stock trades down tomorrow, I think that would be a good opportunity to buy it. It just seems to me the
3: stock is trading on fundamentals. I mean, how could the stock be rallying on unexpected politics that it doesn't know about? The stock was concerned, investors were concerned, about 2020. This is a company that gave 13% growth for 2020 and, and basically said, this. we think this is very conservative. So you can't tell me that the stock is moving because they feel better about the political you know, story that behind this company. They feel better about the fundamentals, which I, I think you can't discount the importance of that really being the story. I think that's what we're all saying, because, you know, guys said the politics are going to be what they are. But but UNH was trading down as much about uncertainty about their core business, I think, related to their business now. And and that may change in 2020, but I, I, I stay along the stock.
1: All right. Up next, Netflix is gearing up to report tomorrow, and the options market's implying huge moves on the results. We've got much more Fast Money right after this. Coming up, it's a moment of truth for Netflix as it gears up to report earnings tomorrow. And options traders are betting the results could be a showstopper. We will explain. We're live at the Nasdaq in Times Square. Much more Fast Money still ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. The curtain raises tomorrow on Fang's marquee featured presentation. Netflix reporting after the bell tomorrow. The stock is down more than 20% since it reported back in July. And our next guest says tomorrow's report could pave the way for another show-stopping move. Let's bring in Bono and Eisen, managing director of equities derivatives at XP Investments, to break down the options action. Bono, and great to see you. Welcome back.
8: Likewise. Thanks so much, Melissa. Really so, a pleasure. So
1: what are you seeing in the options market in terms of the implied move?
8: Uh, options are implying a pretty... Pretty decent move here. If you look at the at-the-money straddle, it's implying about an 11% move. That's pretty significant. The last four quarters have moved on average about 5%, the highest of which which has been 10. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at the option volumes, calls and puts, calls are about one and a quarter times puts, but open interest leans more towards the towards the puts as well. So it's kind of tough to see whether traders are coming in with a bullish or bearish bent. Net-net, people are expecting a volatile move.
1: Okay, so we can't tell from the activity whether or not people are leaning bullish or bearish into the print. Where do you stand on this?
8: Uh, it's, it's tough. You know, as Dan says, you know, these one-up, one-down moves aren't really moves I like to play in, particularly if you look over at historical implied volatility. It's tough to be long options and get this right. You can get the direction right and still end up losing money because the option premium is just so robust.
1: All right. Let's go through the dif- different scenarios. Let's say uh, we get a move to the downside. What do, you, what do you see then?
8: On the back of the three things that they really need to focus on, I would say the most important of which are cash burn and their ability to uh, retain domestic subscribers. If they miss, if you take a look at the chart, mm-hmm. it's like a two-year support channel down around 240 250 That's going to be a real pressure point in the stock there. That's where I'm looking.
1: Right. And on the upside?
8: On the upside, given all the short interest in the stock, we could see a pretty aggressive move back up, kind of retracing some of the losses that we've experienced this year. So right. pretty volatile.
1: You, yeah. you saw the action. Yeah,
4: Bon makes a great point about that implied move for people looking mm-hmm. to make a directional bet. You can get that that move to the upside right if you buy the calls, but if you get the magnitude of the room right. move wrong, it's a really tough one. And like he said, the biggest move over the last four quarters was 10%, and that was last quarter when they had their first ever North American miss. subscriber miss. So I think the likelihood of that sort of happening again is probably not great. But to his point, if they do miss again and North American subs do go lower, two consecutive quarters. It's going back to that level that he identified there on the chart. Well, the 11%
3: implied ball takes you right to 245, right. 250. And I just, you know, I think this company has to prove itself again in terms of their profitability, as has been discussed tonight, in terms of their international subs. Um, we talk about competition all the time, but right now, uh, this is... We can't throw these guys into the same class as a lot of IPOs that don't make money, but they need to make money. They, I think these guys have to be profitable. The cash burn is unacceptable, and I think investors are pushing back.
5: Yeah. We haven't seen yet the competition, right? Apple Plus and Disney doesn't start hear until, until about it. Yeah. Right, yeah. November 12th mm-hmm. for Disney, I think November 1st. for. So we really don't even have one quarter. We have no data we have nothing, of competition. Yeah. Yeah, that's
2: true. No data, and I know the Roku news was different today, but you see how quickly these stocks can go back. I mean, Roku yeah. was one hundred and three dollars where it they closed at one thirty-eight or mm-hmm. so. So the other side of that two fifty level is sort of three seventeen, mm-hmm. give or take. And oddly enough, that's sort of the fifty percent retracement of this spring's high three eighty-five or so, and the recent low that we talked about that two fifty low. So. I don't know. It's a coin flip, but I'm more inclined to think that maybe a lot of people flush themselves out and any semblance of good news tomorrow gets us back above 300.
1: Bonwin, thank you. Thank you Bonwin so much. Bonwin Eisen. For more options, Zach, can tune into the live show this Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, Final Trades. It's time for
5: the Final Trade, Tim.
3: Like the reaffirmation, reaffirmation at United Health 250 is a level. Stay
4: there.
5: Chairwoman. Yeah, looking for ways to hedge the portfolio. Short HYG. If the market trades down, this will go down with it. DMZ.
4: Uh, yeah, Lip uh, looks like it's <laughs> the bottoming here into its OCT 30 earnings. Mel, no, we need the Yankees to score some runs, don't we? Oh, I know. Yeah,
2: it's crazy. MGEN into their earnings release later this month.
1: See you back here tomorrow at 5 for more fast. And that money starts right now.